Podcast One production. Punchy. Whacked. Power. Influence. Take me seriously because I've actually got some clout behind what I'm saying. Welcome to Women with Clout. <laughs> today's episode, we're lucky enough to be able to talk to Dr. Samantha Solon-Biet. She's a researcher at Sydney University and came across my radar uh, when it was announced she'd won a L'Oreal UNESCO Women in Science Australia and New Zealand Fellowship in 2019, worth $25,000. So she's going to use that to pursue her studies in a particularly interesting area. Yeah. As I understand, she's looking at intergenerational effects of maternal diet on obesity and metabolic disorders. So in other words, you are what your grandmother ate. But we are so lucky in Australia because she's here working, as you say, in a Sydney university, come via the Philippines and is a brilliant young scientist and giving the lie, once again, that science is for boys. Bullshit. What a great role model. So, Samantha, tell us about your main research interests at the moment and maybe something about this whole area of maternal diet and why we are, in fact, what our mother eats. So I'm a nutritional biologist, and what that means is that I really want to find out how what we eat influences our health through how it targets the underlying biology and then ultimately drives behavioral outcomes. So... One of the projects that I'm working on is looking at how maternal diet influences her offspring's susceptibility to obesity later on in life. That's through looking at how it changes their eating patterns. Um, That's just one part of what I do. Over the last few years, I've actually been working on the other end of the spectrum. So looking at how diet or nutrition can delay the aging process and how we can live longer, healthier lives. There is some evidence showing that in older age, much older age, having a little bit of body fat without all the disease, say just having fat, is actually beneficial for surviving sickness because you have more weight on, you have better bone mineral density, so you are less susceptible to falls. And that's, of course, the caveat is that you can't be hypertensive or have type 2 diabetes. So a little bit of fat is not necessarily a bad thing in older age. So what your mother eats, regardless of what then you go on and eat, as an adult, you might completely change your diet from what you ate as a child. Yeah. But the, the maternal diet still influences you. Does that mean that, in a way, what your grandmother ate is influential on you and even possibly your great-grandmother? Well, That's possible. So these transgenerational effects, the short answer is I don't really know the specifics of how far back eating patterns of generations go. But what we do know from animal studies by other groups is that what a mother or a father eats, let's say a high fat diet or a high sugar diet, can really influence, say, anxiety in their offspring, cognitive function, even whether they choose to eat more high fat or high sugar foods. And That's mainly focused around high sugar, high fat debate. What we don't know is how a mother's protein intake can influence her offspring's appetite. And how that actually, it seems like, oh, where where does that come from? Why protein? Why, Why do we care? So what we do know is that many animals, including humans, have what we call a protein target. So a set point that we want to eat to in order to fulfill 
our nutritional requirements. Now, this was this protein target was coined by professors Steve Simpson and David Robenheimer back in the 90s. And they actually first demonstrated this in insects and have since shown that actually rats, mice, monkeys, baboons, free-ranging orangutans all have a protein target, also humans. So as we know, when we eat more protein, we feel fuller. Then, and it helps us to lose weight, and that's very effective. But we also know that everyone's protein target is different. So it could change with how old you are or your life stage. If you're pregnant, your protein target is probably higher. If you're very old, your protein target's a little bit higher so that you don't have muscle wastage. So we know this protein target exists, but we don't know how it's programmed. Is it something that can be programmed early in life, as early as when we're in our mother's tummies? Can it be programmed in utero? And that's really one of the research projects that I'm looking at. Can a mother's protein intake essentially set the protein target of the offspring early in life? And does this then have a a possible use in helping with the obesity epidemic? Yes, yes. And also perhaps with the opposite end of it, osteoporosis and bone density and that kind of thing as well. Sort of ageing issues. In general, Yeah. yeah. So in terms of the obesity epidemic, one of the hypotheses that I'm trying to test is around the idea of protein leverage. So this is, again, a hypothesis by Professor Simpson and Robenheimer that they laid out a few years ago, and they've shown it in older humans. But essentially, let's say I have a very high protein target, which means I need to eat quite a bit of protein to feel satisfied, but you have a much lower protein target. So that means you need to eat, let's say, half the amount of protein to feel full, and I need to eat twice the amount of protein, which is fine, except when we're in an environment, a very nutrient-poor environment like we are now, where everything is disguised as protein, but is really all carbs and fats. For example, chicken-flavored chips or burger rings. All those things taste umami, these salty flavors that trigger our brains to think, yes, this is protein, but really... We've just disguised it. Our ultra-processed foods are disguised to taste like protein, but there's actually no protein in them. And the result is I probably eat twice the amount of hot chips that you do, getting more calories, more fat, more carbs, and then that slight, uh, well, that increase in energy intake over time leads me to become, you know, put on, keep the energy and store it on as fat. So one of the questions I'm thinking is, I'm, I'm looking at right now is, if we give a mother a very low or a very high protein diet, and then we take their offspring and give them a choice, do they choose to eat more protein given the mother has a high protein diet? And if so, what happens when we put them in a junk food Western diet? Do they end up chew- eating more calories and exacerbating obesity? Speaking of mothers, how did you get interested in this area? And I know that you've had quite a, a kind of unusual pathway into doing this kind of research. So tell us a little bit about your background and how you got involved in this. Sure. So I actually did my Bachelor of Science in Marine Science Uh um, at Sydney University. And I really, originally from the Philippines and surrounded by water, I just wanted to do, you know, um, sustainable fishing, you know, improve the environment. We rely heavily on the ocean for our food. Um, And when I did my honors project in nutrition and fish, my goal at the time was how can we do sustainable aquaculture, Um, essentially provide fish to eat in a sustainable way, and how can we optimize fish feeds to do that? 
And that's when really my interest in nutrition started. And from there, I went to asking a question in terms of um, fish in the environment to looking at it in a more medical sense. So what can, how can nutrition really influence our health using a different model? And this is when I started working with mice. And really since then, I've just been on this journey. I've just taken the opportunities as it's come. And I've been really lucky to have an amazing group of mentors and, and teammates that have just pushed me along the way and have helped me steer my way across. Samantha, on, just on that, did you have that sort of uh, motivation and support when you were growing up as well to, to continue your studies and to pursue a career from your family and friends? Yeah, my family, um, they're all in the Philippines. And I think I'm the only one that was a real scientist. Everyone was more business. So I was the one saying, oh, I'm, I'm going to do marine science. And they're like, oh, there's, there's no job there for you. <laughs> but um, I think they never stopped me or were never not supportive, but never pushed me towards one direction either. And I think because it was something I knew I enjoyed, even from the third grade, I remember my father saying, what's your favorite subject? And I said, science. And he was like, what? Maths is the best. Math is always math. It's not, it never changes. <laughs> science always changes. Mm. And that's what I love about it. We're always learning. And mm. what we find out today could be wrong in 10 years time, but that's okay. Cause you're not driven by some kind of you know conflict of interest or any kind of um, affiliation with well, I'm not, at least. It's, it's just about finding out. Yeah, yeah, it's a curiosity. Curiosity. Curiosity, exactly. Yeah. So being an experimentalist, asking a question, designing an experiment to answer that question and to fill a gap that no one's ever known before, that's awesome. That's fun. And you talked about everyone else in your family is busy. Do you have many brothers and sisters? You know, what do your parents do? Yes, I'm the youngest of five kids. Mm -hmm. So my siblings do all manners of things teaching English, cooking, um, working in shipping. And my parents are very much into agriculture in the Philippines. So that's kind of where it was, oh, eventually maybe I'll go back and do sustainable aquaculture. I'm so far removed from that now. I, I don't know if I could go back and do that. Maybe I can. But right now, I'm being a, a professional in, in STEM and academia is so rewarding that I can't see myself doing anything else. It's Really lovely to hear your enthusiasm for it and from clearly from a young age because what we do know, of course, is that women only make up, of, what is it, just over 28% of science researchers worldwide. I mean, it's a constant issue, isn't it, around women in STEM? Um, and a lot of it ends up being about, oh, what a shame women aren't just more interested. What's your message to, to younger women? Because I bet you get asked about this quite a lot. See, I think that there is always a lot of interest in STEM, Um and at the early parts of the career, at least where, where I am, maybe within 10 years of going into a STEM career, there are a lot of women. But where we start to see the cutoff is in senior leadership positions. And whether that coincides with us wanting to have children, taking a step back, is that a conscious choice? Um, yes, probably. But there are now, I suppose, mechanisms or university, universities at least are really supportive of women leaving, having families and coming back to work. And we keep forgetting, don't we, that children have fathers. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and we never ask them, no, yeah. to take a step back. No. 
mean, we, we, we say, oh, you can have your children, your career, you can do whatever you want and we'll help. Oh, women, well, you know, it's going to be really hard. It's the same everywhere. That's funny that you say that because my I have a five-month-old um, and a four-year-old and my current mother's group, there's maybe 12 of us and three of the fathers are taking full-time um, mm-hmm. leave to care for their child while the mom goes back to full-time work. So I think it's a huge I mean, I wouldn't have expected that four years ago, and not, certainly none of the fathers in that group were doing that. But now, it's changed. Uh, yeah, that's so great. hopeful. It is really hopeful, it's and really you good. know, you do read about it as a business journal. I've been reading about it and writing about this for years. So the policies are there, but there hadn't been a lot of uptake. But I'm sensing that as well, and I'm hearing that anecdotally. Yeah. There are a lot more men taking advantage of those uh, parenting leave, paid parenting leave uh, options now, which is fantastic uh, to hear about. But, you know, the other thing, Jane, about that whole idea that it's women, you know, what a shame, they get distracted by babies and so on, that's all about supply and it's never about demand. Mm. I mean, it is not beyond the ken of a sophisticated organisation to provide jobs and career options for women that are attractive mm. um, and that actually keep them, retain them, keep their their know-how and, and the value of them. And yet we constantly talk about, oh, what a shame. Women just don't have that ambition, which is is really an old-fashioned and very hampering sort of notion, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, I'm sure you've got lots of uh, colleagues in your area very keen to continue their careers. Absolutely. Why would you spend all that time if you weren't keen to do that? Exactly. And, and I think just on our WhatsApp group, Yesterday, someone was saying, oh, I'm contemplating my fourth child. What do you guys think? <laughs> and uh, everyone was giving Don't. their opinions. <laughs> <laughs> but ultimately, it was things like, oh, um, you know, do you want to go back to your career? How much time off? Depends what your career is. Can you financially afford this and that? And it was a very sensible set of things that people were chiming into. And I find that those that had a, a career rather than just a job, say doing bits and bobs here, we're less likely to have three, four, five children because just going back to the career is hard well, work. How do you manage? I mean, you're living this. How do you manage? Well, I've only have two. So only two? So two I is think- a lot. My, I'd left here with my two grandchildren at home. They've just trashed the house from top to bottom. Two is a lot. Two, two is a lot. Two is a lot. I, I mean, I'm not going to lie that my first child, I took six months off. But the whole time I was really anxious about going back to work because I was thinking, I'm just starting my career. I got pregnant. Oh, no, my life is over. My boss, and I started crying to my boss telling him, actually, this is funny. So he pulled me into his office. I was 10 weeks pregnant. I hadn't told him that I was pregnant yet because, you know, you mm-hmm. wait till 12 weeks. Mm-hmm. And he said, oh, in July, I, you should go to this conference in the UK, it's fantastic, blah, blah, blah. And I burst out in tears, all hormonal. Like, I can't go because I'm pregnant and I'm going to have a baby. And, and and he was like, why are you crying? Are you crying because of the baby or because you're worried about work? And I said, my career is just taking off. I can't take time off. And he said, you're crazy. Everything's going to be fine. Like, oh, enjoy the time with your baby. Take time off. Um, don't say no to this. Think about it later on if you want to go. Think about it closer to the day. And he's really been the best support for me. Wow. Can you clone him? Yeah. He's the best boss in the world. Like, I couldn't even, can't think about leaving. And I ended up going to that conference and it was really good. I won an award for speaking there. So it was, it was really good. And he's been, every, every kind of move that I've made in terms of even, 
I'm taking eight months of paid leave now. And he's like, yeah, that's that's fine. Take all the time you need. I think I've maybe proved to him that I'm not just going to leave my projects. I'm going to get my ducks in a row to make sure that everything is still going while um, I'm away. And it's still going. I've got an awesome team that's taking care of things while I'm away. And I'm really enjoying maternity leave this time around. The first time I was so anxious about going back to work. And this time I'm like, oh, you know, I don't want to go back to work. So <laughs> do you think not. having that sort of, because a lot of women are working in professions that require client service and being on, on demand for, you know, customers and that kind of thing. But you're working on a long-term intellectual, creative voyage of discovery, if you like, that really you're particularly expert in. Do you think there's actually, it's easier in a way to fit, fit having that in a way your work and life are not separated, they are the same thing. Yes, I'm, I'm definitely not a, a, what are they called, those, those that integrate their work and life and those that keep it separate. I think I'm much more of an integrator mm-hmm. than I am the other way. But I think, yes, you're right. Academia is actually a good place to have kids because if you have your ducks in a row and you build a team that you trust and are always in constant communication with, then then you you can actually keep things going without having a huge career break, which is huge in academia. If you don't publish for a year, they're like, what happened? Why did she drop off the face of the planet? So it's very, I think it's a good place to have children. That being said, on my mom's group again, I know that three of the women have lost their jobs going into maternity leave. Mm. Um, not, And they're trying to see if they can go to legal aid and to see what what the situation that is, is there. unfortunately, sadly, very common. Yes, um, and it has been for a long time. Maternity discrimination, which is the which term they don't for call it. it that though. Do no, they? I know, but it actually is. It is exactly, it is. Mm. Um, and it's always a restructure, or just about always. A restructure. Oh, what a shame! Your job is no longer exists. So it's always done very deftly, especially if it's a large employer. So there are no grounds for suing. But if you talk to the Human Rights Commission and so on, and lawyers that work in this area, it's extremely common still. I was fired when I was four months pregnant with my first child. Mm. And that was back in 1987. And in those days, there was absolutely nothing you could do. I just had to walk out. And I remember saying to my boss, because I was showing, I said, you've just fired the only person in the organisation who can't get another job. Yeah. No one's going to hire me yeah. pregnant. Yeah. He looked at me like I, you know, just it's punched such, him in the head. Well, it's such a pity. Which I had. <laughs> but on the upside, of course, I think that some of that is shifting because of the, the phenomena you mentioned earlier. More dads are taking leave. It's it's becoming slightly more normalised. But your point also, and, and Jane's about sort of the longer term, looking at things longer, aren't we incredibly conservative still about how we look at careers and experience? I would always say to people, I became a much better writer, a much better journalist as I got older with more experience and life experience. So... The, the idea that, you know, at a crucial period of your life, when you, an organisation's already invested in you, they would say, oh, well, off you go. It's too much effort. When in fact, the, to reap the rewards of that over the longer term is the point, really. But I mean, it is it is interesting how much a, a really good boss, what a difference that, that can make as well. Yeah, so. having someone bat for you, I think is really important. And whether that's a, a 
a woman or a man, it doesn't really matter. Oh, no, 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 no. I think sometimes having the dominant party bat for you is can be even you know, stronger because it's not seen as self-serving or something. Um, but also, I think there's a lot of other initiatives that are more aware within the university outside as well. Like, for example, the L'Oreal for Women um, in Science Fellowship. That's That's specifically looking at these women in these STEM careers and how can we best support them through really important times in their lives where maybe they have to juggle life and career at the same time, like right now. So mm. the fellowship that I'm using is going to help pay for childcare for my second, which we know is ridiculously expensive. Oh, it's expensive. ridiculously yes. expensive. Um, I'm just waiting for my first to go to school so that I don't have to <laughs> pay for two That's two right, fees. The, the relief, financial relief yeah. of, of your children actually going to school now. So many women, if they go back more than one or two days a week, are suddenly paying to go to work rather than being paid to go to work because of the cost of getting their children and minded. And the tax system oh, and a whole lot of other pieces oh, yeah. of, kind of basic infrastructure. Mm-hmm. Things like the fellowship, they are incredibly important, as are some of the groups like the STEM, women mm-hmm. in STEM groups, superstars of STEM. They've They've been a really important initiative over the last few years. And I imagine when you're part of that, you're meeting a whole cohort of fascinating women who can be a fantastic resource as well. Yeah, absolutely. And like Franklin Women as well, they have something where you can nominate um, a woman for for an award for being a great mentor. And I think that's more, people are more aware of it now. We have to advocate for women. We have to mentor women. We have to help women promote, like get promotions and I think maybe, I don't know if before in the past it was kind of competition, but just because you're elevating someone else doesn't mean you diminish your own, Mm. you know, your own stage. Well, on that though, I mean, we are seeing some real shifts and some moves forward, I think, ever since Me Too movement, but there's also a pushback. There's a lot of resentment, a lot of sense in which some men in particular are saying, oh, now the most, what is it? The most discriminated against group are white men. Mm. Really? Let's look at a few stats and see if that holds up. Do you find that in the science world and in academia that there is a, a just a feeling of resentment as if, oh, those women are getting a gig because they're women? I personally don't think so. I'm sure it exists. I'm sure right. there are some places where it happens. But I think I'm part of a an age now where there's always diversity and inclusion is considered in every decision that's being made. Whether that's looking at a list of speakers for a conference. Let's make sure that there are some amazing women on that list, not just the top men that come to, you know, come to the tops of our heads or promotions, fellowships, those kinds of things are always looked at. And how can we promote a gender balance in this? So, in the last few years, I've, that's what I've been observing. Maybe I'm an optimist and I'm seeing all the good parts and I'm no, not. Maybe you know. you're working in a more enlightened area and profession. I'm seeing the change, yeah. let's say. I'm seeing the change and it's something that I'm just becoming more aware of now as I'm getting a little bit older, managing people. Because at the bottom end, you kind of just put your head down, you do your work, make sure you're indispensable, get things done. And then when you start trying to go for promotions and start hiring people and managing them, you're starting to see where the changes might be and what you can do to actually 
make a positive change in the workplace. Although I don't think there's any question there's been a change. When I I started off uh, in business reporting, the Fin Review used to carry uh, advertisements for conferences all the time and that would just be a bank of male faces uh, for the lineup. That just does not happen anymore. Now, it's been a painful change, I can tell you, and a lot of resentment at times, but that has shifted. So organisations understand that. What I think is interesting now, and I think we're just on the cusp of this, and I do hope it it gathers momentum, is that it's not just white, middle-aged faces. So we're actually starting to see a cohort of people who are experts and leaders who reflect our population. And I think I'm really quite optimistic. Except in the Liberal Party. Except in, yeah, since (laughs) there are certain areas, Jane, where I think it's very apparent (laughs) that hasn't mm, quite happened. happened. But you walk around a university. I mean, look at that. Mm. Look at that mix in Australia. One of our incredible advantages, seeing that reflected in organisations of all kinds, I think is, um, I think we're overdue for. Mm. So, but I, as I say, I'm optimistic. I reckon that's that's going to happen. Yeah, I think that's great. I do want to ask you one quick question before we, we come to a close, and that is because it's sort of hanging in the air, dying to be asked. Now that you're a mother and you're doing this research, what do you eat? <laughs> That, that's a good question. Um, What's your protein yeah, target? Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, I think when I was pregnant, I went with what my body was telling me, and sometimes that was a cheese oh toasty, yeah. well, and sometimes say, that was a lot of red meat. I am conscious now that I'm five months postpartum. I'm trying not to, you know, that Kit Kat bar that was, you know, 3 p.m. regular is has to go now. <laughs> um, but I, I am, you know, what, what we do eat has a huge influence on our children in, in utero. Mm-hmm. Changes in the epigenetics or so modifications of the genes that tell us, you know, what, phys- what kind of a processes are switched on or switched off. We know that that exists. So having healthy, it's, it sounds boring. There's no magic pill. There's no magic diet. But eating um, moderate protein, low fat with high carbohydrates, high healthy foods is always going to be the way to go. Lots of fiber for your microbiome that we know influences your child's immunity. Things like having adequate protein for size and uh, just growth and development. And a little bit of fat, or especially omega-3s, are really good for brain development for children. So that's definitely one thing that I do supplement is fish oils every day. We know now, for example, that kids who are born into very poor and disadvantaged backgrounds, that the in utero diet and also the level of stress that a mother experiences and poverty creates stress mm-hmm. has an effect on, because there's a cortisol in the brain, has yeah. an effect on the development of IQ. Yes. This is incredible. That's incredible. And stress also can be related to sleep, which is another very interesting thing. So if you look at, um, there's studies looking at animals where the mothers are not allowed to sleep. Essentially, they're they're bothered every time they oh. fall asleep. Oh. And that changes the cortisol Mind you, levels. it's very realistic of being a parent of a small child. <laughs> this is exactly Sounds where familiar. that came from. Yeah. I was talking to another mother and we were thinking, oh, you know, I'm so sleep deprived. I wonder what that's doing to my child, you know, if you have another, if you're pregnant, and we thought, oh, let's look that up, and we're trying to put that in as a grant, actually. <laughs> Looking I think at it's that, it's a really good it's, idea. It's absolutely, might lead to fathers having to take the other child away for the whole yeah, nine yeah. months. Exactly. <laughs> but yeah, the cortisol levels in those children also went up, as well as the dopamine signaling, making them more anxious yeah. um, and depressed. So, and bad memories, uh, bad like cognitive function. So it's sleep, cortisol. Yes, um, poor diet, it all, all interacts. It all interacts. Mm. It's real. 
such a fascinating area and really a reflection. Again, we were talking earlier about, you know, signs of change and, and optimism. Um, isn't it fantastic that we're actually getting, you know, detailed research on some of this? Because I think there's always been that, it's, oh, it's women, it's women having babies, you know. Oh, oh yes, it's, it's, a bit it's kind of important, but we'll leave that over <laughs> there. It is fascinating to see just as the world changes, uh, you know, in some good ways that we are seeing uh, more interest in these absolutely crucial areas. Which is why we need more women in every area because their focus is different. What it they want to look at is different. What their interests are and life experience is different and valuable and important. No more valuable or important in, than what men are interested in, but we just didn't used to do it before. Well, we know that with legislative bodies around the world, when there are more women, the nature of what is considered and the legislation that they pull through is different. And so it is in STEM. And for one of the events that we did for the um, L'Oreal Women in Science Week was we spoke to uh, four girls in science. And there was one in Melbourne and one in Sydney. And there were hundreds of girls, high school students there. And one of the questions posed was, you know, we were talking about our experiences, but like, what are your experiences in in STEM subjects. And it was amazing what these girls were saying, like the hairs in, on my arms were standing saying, you know, I'm, we're the only three girls in our physics class. And, you know, it's, it's a little bit uncomfortable at times, but actually there was a physics competition where we had to do this and we won. And they were just like, yeah. And people, I'm the only girl in my computer science class or in my engineering class. And they, I think, felt empowered and we felt empowered saying, you know, they sh we were an example that we could be science, women in science, and they were just so inspiring. It was it's lovely it's to the hear. next generation. It's lovely to hear that they're not peculiar or unusual or weird in or some way. Or our brains are incapable yes. of absorbing or you science think, or Oh, math. gee, you think like a man <laughs> was a compliment when I was a girl, you know. <laughs> and I used to think, gosh, that bad. It is fantastic and it actually is a myth buster, isn't it? Um, because I think no matter how we think that we've, we've moved on, I am still interested, especially in areas like IT, that we still hear these unvarnished views that women are biologically not drawn to that kind of area the high-paid, powerful yeah. sectors yeah. of the economy, yeah. needless to say. So anything that does it, and not just anything, but incredible examples um, like your own, Samantha, are really uplifting and fantastic to hear your story. Thank you. Thank you so much. It was great to meet you. Thanks for having me, guys. Women with Clout is presented by Jane Caro and me, Catherine Fox, and created in collaboration with Podcast One Australia. Producer Lib Proud, theme music composed and performed by David Beckingham. For more episodes, go to podcastone.com.au, download the Podcast One app, or search Women with Clout on Apple Podcasts. 